Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. When I was in school studying to become a pastor, uh, one of the classes I took was a class on family development within the Christian context. Uh, That class involved a mixture of psychology, Christian spirituality, and part of our work in that class involved doing some examination into our own families of origin, how we were raised, how we were brought up, uh, the values that our parents gave to us, how our parents, how our caregivers connect with us, and how all that plays into who we are as people today. While we were having this discussion one day in class about lasting lessons that our parents gave to us, think about some of the lasting lessons that your parents gave to you. While as we were having this conversation, all of a sudden, this one student spoke up, she raised her hand, and I will never forget what she said. She said, my parents came, and they dropped me off from my very first year of college. And so they helped me, you know, get all my stuff out of the car and put it in the dorm room, and we attended orientation. And then we were at the car, and they were getting ready to say goodbye. And they hugged me, and they kissed me, and prayed with me. And that's when my mom had one last conversation with me before she left. This is what my mom said to me. Well, you're basically an adult now. And there's a good chance that from here on out, not just in college, but into the future, you're going to do some things, hopefully not a lot of things, but you're going to do a few things that I'm not going to like, that I'm not going to care for, that I'm not going to agree with. Listen, I get that. I understand that. You're your own person. I was where you are about 30 years ago. But above all, as my daughter, here's what I want you to know and remember. No matter what you do, no matter what you decide, No matter what kind of person you become, you can always come home. You can always come home. Isn't that a wonderful thing for a parent to say to their child? You can always come home. I was thinking about all that this week as I was crafting this sermon. A lot of you know that we're in a sermon series right now here at Asbury um, called Stories Jesus Told. Stories Jesus Told in which we are taking a closer look at some of the parables. Um, Jesus told parables, which are basically short stories, in the first three Gospels of the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke, uh, these stories that convey to us profound spiritual teaching. And in this message series, uh, we are discovering how these stories uh, continue to speak God's truth into our lives, even now today. Well, the story, the parable that we're going to explore this morning, I've got to be careful, the story and parable that we're going to explore this morning is really a story, when it comes down to it, about coming home. And so with that in mind, check out these words from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 2, and then verses 11 through 32. If you'd like to follow along, uh, these words are up here on the screen. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain 
that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Jesus told them the story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money and wild living. I'll leave it to your imagination to determine what that wild living entailed. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. The story doesn't stop there. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, notice he doesn't say this brother of mine, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I mentioned some weeks ago when we started the sermon series that we have anywhere from 30 to 40 recorded parables from Jesus in the New Testament. Anywhere from 30 to 40 recorded parables from Jesus in the Gospels. And yet, of all the parables Jesus told, of all the stories Jesus told, this one takes the cake, doesn't it? It is by far, without question, the most renowned story of Jesus. Now, this parable that we just read has traditionally been called what? Do you know the title of it? The parable of the prodigal son. Uh, prodigal essentially means reckless, uh, irresponsible. And so this title, prodigal son, uh, serves to remind us of how reckless and irresponsible this younger son was, how he treated his father and what he did with his father's money. And yet, as much as we might gravitate and lean toward that title, 
if we think about it, that title is misleading because the story is not primarily about the prodigal. It's not primarily about the younger son. It's also not primarily about the older son who appeared to do everything right. Instead, this story, first and foremost, is about a father, about a father who was lovesick for his sons. In fact, I prefer the title, Lovesick Father over Prodigal Son. Notice again how Jesus begins this story. This is verse 11. A man, these are the first words he says, a man had two sons. So Jesus doesn't say there were two sons who had a father. Instead, a man had two sons. Who does he begin with? Begins with the man, which tells us what? It tells us that the man is the leading character of the story. And the main thing, the principal thing that Jesus wants us to know about this man, it's not that he's wealthy, it's not that he's rich, it's not that he has land, although all that's true as we discover. Instead, the main thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that this man had two sons, which means, and this is important, this man chose to define himself and who he was as a person in relation to his sons. He loved both of his sons. It's not that he loved one son more than the other. When I was a kid, I would ask my mom, okay, which of us do you really love the most? Is it myself? Is it my brother? Is it my sister? Come on, you got to love one of us the most. Which one do you love the most? Anybody ever ask their parent that question? Do you have kids who ask you that question? It's not that he loved one son more than the other. He loved both of his sons equally. He loved both of them the same. And yet each son in their own way chose to reject their father's love. And Jesus is telling this story to convey to us, to illustrate to us how different people choose to reject Almighty God's love. First, you have the younger son. The younger son is a free spirit, isn't he? He is a party waiting to happen. He loves the limelight, loves the attention. He loves it when the focus is on himself. He wants to be the groom at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, the baby at every baptism, we might say. He's charming. He's charismatic. Probably knows how to talk to people really well. But he has his faults. Spoiled. Immature. Impulsive. Needs to grow up. That's the younger son. And then you have the older son. The older son is a role model. He's an overachiever. He gets straight A's. He makes his bed every morning without his parents asking him. Uh, he takes his schoolwork seriously. He puts his allowance in his piggy bank every single week. But he's also bossy. Probably has a tendency to make people around him feel small and inadequate. Jesus' point is that neither one of these sons is fully in relationship with their father. And this point becomes more evident to us when the younger son chooses to reject his father completely. He comes up to his father one day, and this is what he basically says to him. Old man, I am tired of waiting around for you to kick the bucket. You ever heard that expression before? Let's just pretend as if this has already happened, and I could have my share of the estate now. Let's be clear. This was an offensive and outrageous request, one that the father was under no obligation to fill. And yet, not wanting to force his son to stay at home, this father surprisingly does what his son asks. 
And Jesus follows up with these words in verse 13. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. Now, why did it take a few days? Why not immediately? Well, this father was considerably wealthy. He needed probably at least a few days, maybe two, three, four days, to liquidate his assets, which meant that during this period, this younger son, he could have changed his mind. He was thinking through, we assume, the ramifications of what he was doing, how his actions were deeply hurting his father, but he didn't seem to care. Instead, as soon as that check was in his hands, he was off in a distant country, he was partying it up, having a good time, living the good life. But no sooner does he leave than the money runs out. The money always runs out when you're behaving recklessly and irresponsibly, doesn't it? And then to make matters even harder, a famine hits. And not just any famine, Jesus is clear. This is what Jesus says in verse 14, a great famine. Somebody say great famine. A great famine swept over the land. Folks, in the ancient world, famines were deadly. They're no picnic today, but they were especially deadly back then. There was no government assistance. There was no FEMA. There was no world vision. There were no outside organizations that could step in and help vulnerable people out. This might sound kind of graphic, but famines back then meant theft, murder, cannibalism, bodies lying in the street, children literally being sold into slavery. Every person for himself or herself. Jesus' point is that even as bad as it gets, this young man still doesn't want to go home. Why? Because he knows what's waiting for him if he dares to return. In that culture, if a person did what this young man did, took his inheritance, squandered it among the Gentiles, in other words, among people who were not of God, not followers of God, well, if that person, if that young man dared to come back home because he had no other alternative, what would happen is the whole community would come together, not just the immediate family, but really the whole community, all the neighbors, all the friends, and they would take a pot, like this one. What do you put in a pot? Flower? Plant? What does that represent? Life? Growth? Vitality? Well, as a symbol, remember, Jewish culture is very visual, as a symbol of how destructive this young man had been, how he had severed ties with his neighbors, with his community, with his family, with his father, they would take this pot and they would Smash it like that. Right in front of him. And then, they would pick up one of the broken pieces. And they would say, let the broken piece of this pot represent you. You are no longer whole. You are no longer family you are no longer welcome. You are kazaza. They called this ceremony the kazaza. Can you say this with me? Which is Hebrew for cutting off. 
That's why he was expecting to be made a hired servant at best. Certainly not a son. You're cut off. And the sad truth is that there are people out there who have experienced something like this. And it's left them with deep, deep wounds. Timothy Paul Jones is a seminary professor. I believe he lives up in Kentucky. And a while ago, he wrote this book entitled Proof, P-R-O-O-F, Proof. And in that book, he writes about how his middle daughter had previously been adopted by another family. And for whatever reason, this couple failed to fully integrate uh, this child into the family of their biological children. For example, whenever this family would take a vacation to Disney World, they would take their biological children, but not the adopted daughter. They would leave her at home with a family friend to look after her. Now, the child didn't know why this was happening. In her mind, this was happening because, well, I must have done something bad that precluded my presence on the trip. Well, after a couple of rough years, the couple eventually decided to dissolve the adoption and place this little girl back into an agency. All that did was further traumatize her. Well, fast forward, Timothy Paul Jones and his wife, they adopt this little girl. They include her among their other children. And by this point, she was about eight years old. And she had heard all these wonderful things about Disney World. She had seen all these pictures of Disney World. She knew about the parade. She knew about the fireworks. She knew about uh, Mickey Mouse and, and the junk food and, and all that good stuff. But she had never actually experienced Disney for herself. She had never passed through the gates of the Magic Kingdom. Well, when Timothy and his wife heard about this, their hearts broke. And so they made plans. They said to all the children, okay, we're all going to take a vacation to Disney World. What they didn't expect is that this announcement would produce so much bad behavior from this little girl. She began to lie. She began to steal food. She would whisper insults to her older sister that made her older sister cry. The closer they got to the trip, the worse the behavior became. And this really confused Timothy and his wife. And so one day he pulls this little eight-year-old girl aside and he asks her point blank, hey, sweetie, what's going on? Help, help me understand, what's with the bad behavior? And she said, I knew it. I knew it. This is it. You're not going to take me to Disney World now, are you? He finally realized what was happening. She was purposely behaving badly so that if she wasn't taken on the trip, like what had happened before in that previous family, at least in her mind, there was some logical explanation. Okay, I was bad. That's why I can't go. So Timothy said to his little girl, let me ask you a question. Is the whole family going on this trip? She nodded, there were tears in her eyes. Aren't you a part of the family? She nodded again. You're going. Yeah, we'll talk about this bad behavior, but you're going with us. Nothing's going to change that. Well, despite that reassurance, the behavior didn't get better. In fact, it only got worse. It got worse at home. It got worse on their way to Orlando. It even got worse when they were in the hotel the night before their trip. 
Well, then they finally went to Disney World the next day, and oh my goodness, that little girl probably had more fun at Disney than any person has ever had at Disney World. She went on rides, and she saw the characters and got their autographs. She encountered Mickey Mouse. She ate junk food and saw the parades and, and the fireworks at night. She really had the most magical day at the most magical place on earth. And then later that night, as they were in the hotel room, he was tucking that little girl in, and she was snuggling up with her stuffed unicorn. And he asked her, well, what'd you think of Disney? How was your first day? This is what she said word for word. Daddy, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. And it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. I finally got to go to Disney World. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Folks, we have a God who in the Lord Jesus Christ wants to take us to Disney. In other words, he wants to give us life. He wants to give us salvation. He wants to give us healing. He wants to give us restoration. He wants to give us all that he has to offer, not because we are good, not because we have our act together, but because we are his. He made us. He created us. He designed us, as it says on the first page of the Bible, in his very own image. He calls each and every one of us by name. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Nothing can ever change God's heart toward us. Nothing could ever stop God's pursuit of us. This young man is on his way back home. He's expecting the kazaza. He's expecting to be made a servant at best. But notice instead what the father does. Verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He did what? He ran to his son. He didn't casually walk. He didn't stroll. He ran. Now, these days, a lot of people are into running, aren't they? Do we have any folks here who are into running? Okay, good, because I'm not either. We had some folks at the last service. But these days, we have folks who are into running. We have folks who run 5Ks and, and marathons and half marathons. And running nowadays is considered a sport. It's a hobby. But in the ancient world... When Jesus was telling this story, the patriarch of a family, a man of dignity and authority who carried himself well, dressed in elaborate and ornate robes, did not run. Running meant gathering up the edges of your robe and exposing your bare naked legs. Running was considered shameful. It was considered degrading, humiliating. And yet Jesus says to us, that this father ran. He lost all sense of properness and social inhibition. Why? Because he could not stop thinking about his son and how desperately he wanted his son to come home. And in the same way Jesus is saying to us, Jesus is saying to you, Jesus is saying to me, that we have a God who is ready to run to us who could not stop thinking about us, who was ready to degrade himself. And in fact, God did degrade himself. He was born in a manger among a bunch of animals. 33 years later, he died naked on a cross so that he can be in a relationship with us. 
So maybe you're hearing this sermon right now, either here in the sanctuary or online, and you're like the prodigal. You've been off in a distant country, reveling in sin, wallowing in brokenness, thinking that you're too far gone, and that if you dare come back to God, God's going to kazaza, God's going to cut you off. Here's what God wants you to know. I'm ready to run to you. You can always come home. Or maybe you're not like the prodigal. Maybe you're like the older brother, the older son. Because the story is not simply about one lost son. It's about two. The older son who stands in, who represents the religious leaders, the older son who appeared to do everything right, who obeyed his father, who followed the rules, but not out of love, not out of a genuine desire to be in a relationship with his father, instead out of duty and obligation. And we have folks like that in churches today, don't we? They say going to church, what we're doing right now, as a requirement, as something that you have to do, not something that you get to do. There's no heartfelt connection. There's no intimacy. There's no union. What God wants us older son types to know is this. Everything I have is yours. Stop trying to earn my favor. You already have it. You can always come. Did you notice how this story of Jesus ends? You know, if we think about it, this story doesn't really have an ending, at least not a neat and proper ending. This story doesn't end with the father inside the party having a good time, enjoying the festivities. Rather, the story ends with the father outside the party pleading with the older son to come inside. And that's the kind of God that Jesus points us to. Folks, we have a God who meets us right where we are on the edge of a field as a washed up runaway outside the party as a stubborn legalist. He begs and pleads for us to come home. God's greatest desire is that all of us will come home. A parent wants nothing more than for their child to be home and to be in a relationship with their child. Amen? Amen? You know, my wife Amanda and I have come to learn that. Amanda and I got married uh, seven and a half years ago, almost seven and a half years ago, in uh, 2016. And shortly after we got married, uh, we had the strong sense that God was calling us to become parents. And so we were blessed to welcome our twins, Hannah and Noah, into this world in January of 2018. Uh, you've seen Hannah and Noah running around this church before. And as much as we love Hannah and Noah, and as grateful as we are that God gave these children to us, more recently, uh, we have been having this sense that God wasn't quite finished, and that God had more in store for our family. This feeling was correct. So I want to share something very personal and special with you all, and that is that Amanda's pregnant. Also know this, with one baby this time, <laughs> one baby, we are anticipating welcoming our third child into this world in April of 2024. And folks, let me tell you this, we cannot wait to meet this child and to have this child home. 
but the excitement that a man and I feel, the love that a man and I feel for this child, it pales in comparison to the excitement and the love that the God of the universe feels when all of us are finally home. God wants to be with us. That's the whole reason God came to us in the person of Jesus. God wants to love us. God wants to embrace us. God wants to hold us. God wants to give us the life that we crave. Come to God. Open up your heart to God. Remember that with God, you can always come home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.